Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. You may be seated. Um, as folks are coming in, um, yeah, nobody wants to come sit up in the front row when somebody's preaching a sermon. So if we need more seats back there, uh, there's more places over here. Man, it's so fun to preach this close to you guys. Oh, it's kind of weird being like up in the vacuum. This is really special. Um, we're coming to the end of our series on body life, uh, which is all about the, the Bible's teaching on the church as the body of Christ and us as being individually members of it. Um, and for me, at least, it's been a really rich time in the scriptures. I've just loved studying these things. Last we looked, last week, uh, we looked at the beautiful picture of the first church in Acts 2, and we talked about how they were a community of holy devotion. And my intention was to this week kind of finish studying that passage to talk about the things that they were devoted to, like the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, but instead, we're going to pivot to John 17, to that uh, beautiful gospel reading that Frank read this morning. And this is partially because we've spent four hours in our membership seminars talking about those things in that passage, and I feel like, at least for now, we've kind of covered it. Uh, but also, I was just led to this passage this week because I think in John 17, Jesus ties together all of these beautiful themes about body life and about us being a part of one another and of Jesus in the church in a really profound way. So we're going to look at John 17, and we're going to see how Jesus's understanding of body life gets at the heart of the message of Christianity and our mission as a people and our hope as a people. Does that sound good? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, I love in that gospel reading you said that I've made my name known to them and I continue to make it known. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make your name known this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Um, okay, John 17 is one of the most beautiful, significant parts in all of Scripture. It's like one of the most precious parts of the Gospels. Um, and one of the coolest things about it is it's this long, intimate prayer that Jesus has with the Father that we kind of get to eavesdrop in on. And the heartbeat of the prayer is Jesus interceding for his disciples, his 12 disciples, and also everyone who would come to believe in Jesus through his disciples. And at the heart of his intercession for his people is one great prayer request. So if you've been to church before, and everybody are at different stages with church, but if you've been to a Christian setting before, uh, you might have been in a context where people ask for prayer requests. You're like in a room, and it's like, what, what, what can we pray for you today? Um, imagine if Jesus was in your small group, and it gets around to him, and you're like, oh, Jesus, what can we pray for you for? What's your prayer request? Wouldn't that be amazing? What would Jesus say in your small group? It's like exams, you know, my back, and then it gets to Jesus. What does Jesus want to pray for? We get an opportunity to see just that in John 17. And even though it's a long prayer, it can be reduced, I think, his prayer request to one great theme. And it's so revealing of Jesus' heart. So look at it with me. If you have a Bible, flip with me to John 17. If you don't, totally okay. Turn in your bulletin. 
to whatever page the gospel reading is on. What page is the gospel reading on? Six. Feels good to be in this gym again and ask what page the gospel's on. I always used to do that. I know it's pointless, but it's fun. All right, look at uh, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And just to stop there, so he's praying not only for his 12 disciples, but also for everybody else who will come to believe in his name. And he's, he's interceding. He's asking God for something. What is it? Verse 21. That they may all be what? One. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' great intercession is that we would get to experience and participate in the relationship that he has with the Father. He's interceding to the Father that we might have what he has. And it's a truly amazing thing that this is what Jesus wants above all else. And I should say this is the night before he died. So this is the night that he was betrayed. And here's what it's like. I have publicly confessed before that the 2005 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it. Jane Austen is a a master, and I particularly love that adaptation. But in Pride and Prejudice, if you're familiar with the story, there are these two sisters. They're super close, and they're both longing to be married, and part of the central tension of the drama of Pride and Prejudice is their relationship with these two guys that they're kind of back and forth wondering if they're going to marry or not. And finally, at the end of the movie, the older sister becomes engaged to this guy who's a good man. He's also extremely wealthy, uh, but he's a good guy. And she is elated, this sister. It's this fairy tale moment in her life, and the night of her engagement, she's confiding her joy in her sister, confiding in her sister her joy. She's telling her just how thrilled she is. But then there's this moment that she turns to her sister, who does not have what she has, and she says, Oh, Lizzie, if I could but see you so happy. So she's tasting such a profound delight and satisfaction in her betrothal. And she's immediately drawn to her sister who doesn't have the same thing. And her desire is for her sister to have what she has. Oh, Lizzie, if I could but see you so happy. That's essentially what Jesus is praying. This is amazing. Jesus In John 17, we see him reveling in his relationship with the Father, in the intimacy and constancy of his eternal union with the Father. And his prayer is essentially, oh, Father, if I could see my disciples so happy. Oh, Father, I intercede on their behalf that they might taste with one another what I taste with you, that they might become full participants in what I have with you. And this is amazing to just think that what Jesus wants for you, more than anything, is to be able to taste what he has with the Father. Isn't that amazing? As our great high priest, this is what he's interceding for us. 
Now, what is he talking about? Um, what's he really asking for when he asks that we might be one as he and the Father are one? And I always used to think that this was about unity in the sense of all of us being in agreement and being on like speaking terms with one another. So I always used to think Jesus is essentially praying like, Lord, help everybody to agree on the same doctrine and not fight each other on social media and like have really cohesive like fellowship in church. <laughs> I've come to believe that this is not all that Jesus is talking about. It's certainly not less than unity, but it is certainly more than unity. What Jesus is talking about in John 17 is the merging of heaven and earth. It is way deeper than just unity. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one even as we are one. Jesus is talking about communion. Jesus is talking about communion. And theologically speaking, the word communion is enchanted. It's heavy. It's pregnant with meaning. Communion, here's my best shot at it. Um, we're going to spend a long time talking about what the Bible means by communion and what Jesus is talking about here. But for an upfront brief definition, communion is the spiritual mystery that takes place when two or more persons come together and through their common participation in an experience and in their mutual self-giving, they become one. It's deeper than being in agreement. It is, as I've said before, the fusing of existences. One of my favorite ways of explaining communion uh, is by the theologian jo Joseph Ratzinger. And he says that as Western individuals, we all live with what he calls the impassable fortress of the self. The impassable fortress of the self, which is a really fancy way of saying that we all build barriers around us to protect ourselves and to protect our freedom. So imagine everybody in the room has like a castle wall built around us. And some of us get so far we have like moats and alligators and all kinds of stuff to protect ourselves. But in communion, he says, the impassable fortress of the self is broken down. The walls get breached and we open ourselves up to another person and they to us. And then there's this profound exchange of self-giving that happens where a bond is formed and two become one. In English, we have the word communion to talk about this experience, which if you break communion apart, communion, think about just what that word means. Um, but the New Testament was originally written in Greek and there's a really special word that Greek speakers used to talk about this mystery, and that word is koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. There's your cool word for the week that you can show off at a dinner table, like, well, koinonia. It is essentially the word that the New Testament would use uh, to describe what Jesus is talking about in John 17. And so I want us to take us on a little uh, follow the breadcrumb of koinonia through the Bible for a second because it helps us make more sense of what Jesus is praying for. Interestingly enough, uh, in classical Greek, sorry to nerd out for a second on this, but uh, 
the gospel was written in a type of Greek, but all the stuff that was written in Greek before then, so think everything in the BCs, primarily used the word koinonia to talk about the intimacy of a marriage relationship. That was what it was for. Um, and this makes total sense because if we've discussed several times in this series, marriage is a beautiful, tangible, God-given picture of communion. In marriage, the impassable fortress of the self is opened up, and through mutual self-giving, a husband and wife become one. Sexually, emotionally, covenantally. And we believe that in marriage, something happens that goes beyond a mere legal agreement. There's something deep to it. When Jesus refers to marriage, he says, what God has joined together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So there's a holistic, spiritual, physical fusing of existences in a marriage, and the classical Greeks looked at it and said, that's koinonia. But the unique and revolutionary thing about the Bible is that it takes this idea of koinonia, or communion, in marriage, and it teaches us that marriage, koinonia, is not the point of life, it's not the end goal of our existence, but rather it's a sign, it's a mystery meant to point us to and teach us about the ultimate communion that we were created for with God himself. And we've kind of hit this theme frequently, but in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the mystery of marriage, the koinonia, the communion that happens in marriage, refers to what? Christ and the church. So you and I were made for koinonia, for deep communion, with God and the church. This is what body life is all about. And, if you're still tracking with me on our little koinonia bread trail here, if faithful marital sexuality is a place where we see communion acted out in marriage. The place where we see communion acted out in the church is in the Eucharist, which is why the, ch the church, Christians, have always referred to the Lord's Supper as holy communion. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians really quick. I'm asking a lot of you right now on our journey through Koinonia, but it's really good. Yeah, no worries. Uh, okay, 1 Corinthians 10. This is a really special passage. Look with me at verse 16. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And that word participation is koinonia. So he's saying the cup of blessing, when we all gather to take communion together, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all koinonia of the one bread. We all commune with the one bread. Notice how through the common sharing of the bread and the cup, we become one with Jesus. Do you see that? How in communion you're becoming bonded to Jesus himself and with one another. So when we take communion together, there is a vertical communion happening with us and God, and there's also a horizontal one happening with each other. 
And what's so amazing about this is it is a reflection of the gospel. In the gospel, God opens himself up to us in Jesus. He did not close himself off from us, and he offers himself to us. This is my body. Take it. And in the Eucharist, we take Jesus' body, and we eat it, and it becomes a part of us, even physically. And because all of us partake of that one bread and that one cup, we all become unified. Like sexuality, this is not merely physical. Communion is a participation in heaven. Amen? This is why Paul is adamant about not messing around with both sexuality and the Eucharist. Notice, if you remember the rest of this passage, he's talking about demons, and he's saying, I, you can't mess around with this, because when you do this, you're bonding with Jesus in heaven, and you don't want to do that with a demon. This is why Christians have such a high view of these things. There's something way deeper happening than just a merely physical memorial thing. Now, let's go back to John 17. Communion is what Jesus is saying he has shared with the Father since before the foundation of the world. He's in the Father. The Father is in him through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they are perfectly one. God himself is a perfect communion. And in that communion, all of Jesus' deepest desires are thoroughly, utterly satisfied. All of his deepest thirsts are quenched. Jesus knows fully in his communion with the Father, and he knows that he is fully known. He loves completely, and he is completely loved, and thus he is secure. Jesus is so free in his communion with the Father, and he is, in the eternal deep sense, happy in his communion with the Father. And this is what he really, really wants you to have. He wants you to experience this type of eternal, perfect koinonia, communion with God. He looks at you and I and prays, oh, if I could but see you so happy. I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. This was behind God's creation of humanity. He created you and I to participate in communion with him. Not to be his slaves, praise God. Not to be an experiment. He created humanity to become one with him in love. I love how our Eucharistic prayer begins every week with, Heavenly Father, in your infinite love, you created us for yourself. I love the song that we sing, which we've sang a couple times in the past month. I was made for you, I was made by you, and I am unfulfilled without full communion. You are hardwired for the communion of Christ in his church. It's built into your DNA. You were created to participate in that eternal relationship. The nuclear family cannot satisfy that desire. 
Sexuality cannot satisfy that desire. Community in and of itself cannot satisfy that fundamental desire. All of those things in us are pointing to what Jesus is asking God for you to have. And if communion is behind God's creation of humanity, it was also behind God's redemption of humanity. In our sin, we build back up walls. Uh, In our sin, we reject communion with God and we build high the fortress so nobody can get to us. We reject koinonia with God and we enter into koinonia or communion with darkness. And because of that, God himself cannot have fellowship with us anymore because he is light and what fellowship, what koinonia can he have with darkness? But the good news of Jesus, the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that God sent his son to break down those walls that kept us from communion. When Jesus went to the cross, he chose, out of love, to take on all that darkness that we had chosen to commune with, and he suffered the separation from the Father that we deserved. And by his death, he opened up a breach in the walls. Indeed, the curtain of the temple was literally torn in two at his death. There was literally a tearing open of an impassable barrier. Amen? And that opening is the way that you and I can walk through to have communion with God once again. To receive God who has opened himself up to us in Jesus to give himself to us to open ourselves up again to God. Jesus made a way for communion. And Jesus sent his Holy Spirit so that we could once again experience communion with God. Even now, there's this beautiful um, kind of triune farewell at the, begin- at the end of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. It's often referred to as the grace, but Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the word fellowship there is koinonia. So koinonia is one of the central ministries of the third person of the Trinity. So all of our salvation revolves around God restoring communion to us. And to pull it all together with this series, this is what body life is all about. The many becoming one in Jesus. I and them, you and me, that they may be one even as we are one. In fact, Acts 2.42, the passage that we've been talking about in membership, and if you're visiting, we've been thinking about this picture of the early church in the book of Acts, and it opens up with, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the what? The fellowship, and the word translated as fellowship is our favorite word, koinonia, Meaning, and they devoted themselves as a community to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to communion. Isn't that cool? This is what Jesus asks for the church in his great prayer request. And this is what the church has because the Father loves to give the Son what the Son asks for. We were created for deep communion with God and one another. We were redeemed for deep communion with God and one another by the gospel. And now the adventure of our faith is journeying deeper into communion 
with God and one another. Before I go on, sometimes I do this, but two books that have really made this come to life to me, if you want to have two perspectives on communion from different places, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict in the Catholic Church, wrote a very simple book called Called to Communion. And uh, it's very Catholic, but it is absolutely beautiful in the ways that it describes a lot of these things that we've been talking about. Another one is by an older guy, Puritan, named John Owen. He wrote a book called Communion with God. He actually focuses on that bit at the end of 2 Corinthians about how we commune with God, and both of those are feasts. Communion with God is a lot harder to read, but if you want to think more and read more about these things, uh, man, they've really, really blessed me as I've thought about this. We're called to deep communion. Now, two final things about this communion that I want to point out in John 17, and we'll end with these. Community, where? Communion is our mission, and perfect communion is our hope. Communion is our mission, and perfect communion is our hope. First, communion is our mission. Look back at John 17 with me. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he does it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus plainly connects our communion as a body with a so that. He wants us to participate in this profound relationship with God for a reason. It has a purpose. And that purpose is so that other people might see it and believe that Jesus is from God. That the love of the Father is real. In other words, the deeper that we enter into communion with God and one another, the more clearly we will bear witness to Jesus and the love of God. Communion is our mission. It's our personal mission in life. That's where all this is heading. But it's deeply evangelistic at the same time. This is what we have to offer to the world. We are not, first and foremost, culture warriors. Amen? Hallelujah, I hate being a culture warrior. It's the worst. We're not sent into the world to be moral referees. Oh, Twitter has plenty of those. We are here to offer the world communion. The gospel is about salvation, but it's not just about salvation. Salvation leads to communion, right? Deep communion in word and sacrament, in the Holy Spirit, in body life, in community, and all of the other stuff in Christianity, which is so beautiful, only makes sense when communion with God is elevated to its supreme position in our life as it is in Jesus' prayer in John 17. I could preach on this forever, but just as a quick example, the nuclear family and sexuality are signs, as we've seen, that point to this deep communion with God. But if we take communion God out of the picture, out of its place, 
then sex and family end up becoming the big deal that we claw after to try and quench our deep desire for koinonia. But it never can. Neither of those things can. And in conservative Christian circles, the family often becomes the idol, and in non-Christian circles, sex often becomes the idol. And both of those cannot satisfy communion with God that you were hard for and that we were all headed towards because no one is given or received in marriage in heaven. If our message and our body life lacks the mystery, the transcendent power of communion with God, then we are preaching a straw gospel. We are stirring up people's desires or asking them to repress them without offering anything that ultimately can satisfy them. But not so in Jesus' life. He never fathered his own family, was never married, despite what the Da Vinci Code guy says. <laughs> it's complete hogwash. He died a virgin. And yet, when we read John 17, we see a man who enjoys precious, soul-satisfying communion. His life bore witness to, bears witness to, the eternal marriage, the eternal union that all of our earthly relationships point to and that all our desires are geared towards. This is why for thousands of years, it was so easy for people to forego family or sexuality to be committed to God in communion because they got this, but we have lost it. And now we are trying to figure out where to put stuff in our Christian understanding of the world without having at the top what Jesus ultimately prays for in John 17, which is communion with God. Amen? But because of Jesus and because of what he's asking for and because of the communion that he became to bring the gospel's good news to everybody. And this is the best part. It's good news to the happily or the unhappily single. It's good news to the happily or unhappily married, young and old, male and female. It's good news to everybody because we were all created for the same communion. And we reflect that communion in different ways in our life, but that's where all of us are headed. Communion is our mission. Communion is what we have to offer a world who is starving for it. I'm excited about inviting people into communion with God in Madison. I really am. I genuinely want people to taste communion with God through the Holy Spirit, right? Oh, all right. Lastly, perfect communion is our hope. Perfect communion is our hope. In verse 23, Jesus prays, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus uh, prays not just for us to taste it, but that we might become perfectly one. And this is where we get into the already, not yet, of communion in this life. And if you've been around Christian circles or you've been in the church, you may have heard that phrase before about how we kind of already receive things in the gospel in this life, but they, they get perfected one day at the end of all things. And this is true of communion. Already we taste communion. Through the ministry of the, the Holy Spirit, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit, we experience it. Through word and sacraments, we experience the mystery of full communion. Through body life, 
through being many members, but coming together to be one in the Holy Spirit. And it's so good, and it's very real, and it's very palpable, and I can bear witness to it. I have experienced it. We are experiencing it this morning. But our communion with God and each other is not yet perfect. This side of glory, there will always be an incompleteness to it, just like Paul says we see now in a glass darkly. But we do not lose heart at the incompleteness or the imperfection of it. Rather, we allow these foretastes in the church and in the groans of the Holy Spirit to prepare us for and kindle in us a hope for the ultimate communion that is coming. When we become at the consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, perfectly one. With the Lord himself, with the communion of the saints. That as I heard someone put it, the, the end consummation of our communion at the end of all things is the omega of our faith. That's where it's headed. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one. And that hope as Christians should always be in front of us through the imperfections of how we experience it in life. That's where we're heading. Amen? And so I want to finish. Uh, I'm going to do something which we don't often do, but I really want us to sing that hymn we sang at the beginning one more time at the end of our service because, y'all, that hymn is insane. And it's like hundreds of years ago, people wrote it just for this service and just for this series. Flip with me there really quick. And then we're going to head to the Lord's table. Verse 2, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes, one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Every one of these is amazing, but look at the fourth stanza. Mid toil and tribulation and tumults of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. There's the already not yet, that hope. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the church, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. And finally, yet she on earth hath union, even now with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion. I, this is the only worship song I know of that has the phrase mystic sweet communion in it. So good. With those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high, may dwell with thee. Now, for the rest of our service, we are going to come together to participate in Jesus as one. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.